Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Jason Kalkanis. Jason, as I'm sure most of you already know, hosts an incredible podcast called This Week in Startups. He's also a prolific and highly successful venture investor. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for coming on my podcast all the time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's uh, definitely a bigger audience than this one. So I'm pleased for the <laughs> opportunity. Um, so, look, it's funny. When you and I were chatting for a minute before we started, you kind of mentioned the markets. And my first question for you was kind of two-part. One, where are the markets right now from a venture standpoint? But two, is that truly the predominant thing that anyone and everyone is thinking and talking about? Or is is it overblown a bit? No, this is a pretty serious um, pullback for the markets. Now, we had an incredible run. Uh, if you count it from 2008, the great financial, um, great recession, great financial crisis, you know, people call it different things. Um, you know, that was the start of an incredible boom. And at that time, you could invest in a company like Uber or Thumbtack uh, yeah. at a four or five, $6 million valuation. That's kind of where startups started their journey. And this idea that a startup could be worth a billion dollars or, you know, heck, $10 billion was a very rare occurrence. In other words, reaching unicorn status. And then what nobody really anticipated was, and you know, Uber and Airbnb are primarily responsible, primarily responsible for this, is how fast companies could scale uh, with the right management teams and the right playbook. And so when we saw those companies go to dozens of countries, all of a sudden the idea that, hey, a company could be worth $10 billion became, I wouldn't say commonplace, but a little bit more expected. We'll, we'll see some more of those is what people thought. And sure enough, we did. And then valuations, well, if things are going to be worth more than just a couple of million, a couple of billion, I'm sorry, on an incredible out exit, well, then I guess we could start investing at companies at 10 or $20 million valuations. And then lo and behold, in the last three or four years, things got really out of control, especially with the COVID uh, surplus money and stimulus money being pumped into the system. We just had this cataclysmic... Uh, run up and it was very fake. It didn't match reality. And at the same time, you had people like Masayoshi San, SoftBank, um, start placing very large bets. Then you had Tiger and other folks come in and place even larger bets more frequently on late stage companies. And the whole thing just got so overheated that it started to not make sense and there was a lack of discipline. And so that's all come crashing down. And if you look at public market equities, uh, thankfully Uber and, you know, uh, uh, you know, other companies, uh, Google, Alphabet, um, Amazon have been spared this, you know, 90% haircut. But we did see a lot of companies have 80, 90, 95% of their, their values uh, go away. Now, they should have never been valued where they were. They probably shouldn't be valued as cheaply as they're valued now. But the truth is that causes a lot of second and third order impacts that take a while for people to work through. And this collective flushing out of the system is very painful. And uh, I'm in the thick of it right now. <laughs> you know, usually the summers are pretty quiet for venture capitalists. And this summer, my email is just one long, you know, um, parade of we're running out of money, we can't raise money, we need yeah. a bridge round, we're cutting, we're doing a riff, a reduction, a reduction in force, a workforce that is. And, uh, you know, just pain and suffering and a lot of people taking medicine. And so 
yeah, this is pretty serious. Um, now, overall, the economy and what's going to happen, I have different feelings on. But for the yeah. tech industry, for venture capital, this is acute. Uh, this is like the Great Recession or the dot-com bust. This is very, very analogous to those two moments in time. How? I mean, look, I know there are some macroeconomic factors, you know, like inflation or supply chain that have some impact on all of this. But, you know, if you wanted to be a little critical of our sector, you could say, basically, this is all the result of everyone driving valuations up way up to way too high, which they did in order to justify raising bigger funds with more management fees. So it, didn't we just bring 100 percent of this on ourselves? We brought a lot of it on ourselves. Um, you know, basically, the party gets going and people don't want the party to end. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, it's five, six, seven a.m. The cops show up. You know, so the party ends and it usually ends very abruptly. The lights get turned on. And you go from like dancing until sunrise to like literally the police outside and the lights being turned on and the record scratches. Like it's pretty abrupt when these things come to a uh, to an end. And sure, yeah, there's, there's plenty of blame around. Um, the party got out of control. And some of it is larger funds. I would think, you know, a lot of it is um, people would suspend disbelief in, um, and that is part of being a great venture investor, a private market uh, investor. But the thing that worked really well that I noticed, you know, and I've only been an investor for like 11, 12 years um, now, and only full-time in the last five or six. But what really happened is we used to have a milestone-based funding system. You would go to an ex you'd raise friends and family. Your friends and family would give you fifty grand for five percent of your company, million dollar valuation. Then you go to an accelerator, you know, TechStars, Y Combinator, I one weren't called the Launch Accelerator. You get a hundred thousand dollars for seven percent. Okay, you still own, you know, you know, uh, the major overwhelming majority of your company. You hit a couple more milestones. The product comes out. You get five customers. People are trying it. You get a seed fund to put in a million dollars for. Or five hundred thousand dollars for ten percent. Okay, you still own eighty percent of your company, or so seventy five percent. Okay, then you finally get the Series A. You give up another twenty percent. You've got five hundred thousand a year in revenue. You know, and, and and you would just go right down the line, proving points and getting money. And then what happened was people said, "Well, I have a great idea," and uh, some seed fund would be like, "Okay, I'll give you a million dollars at a ten million dollar valuation for ten percent," and they would skip all those steps. Then a venture firm would be like, oh, the prototype looks good. I'll give you $5 million for 20%. Now you're at a $25 million valuation. So now they got a company that's raised $6 million, so worth $25 million, and they don't have any customers. And now they're ahead of their skis, but they've had such an easy time raising, they assume each subsequent round will become easier. And this became a trap. Um, and it, it is the fault of venture capitalists, absolutely, who would, because they couldn't get into really great deals, Whatever deals they could get into, you know, the next set of deals, and that's not derogatory. There is a, you know, different tiers of deal, deals. Okay, this person's, you know, built two or three companies, like Travis did when you and I invested in Uber. You know, he was on his third major company. You know, it's a different category of founder than first timer out of school. And we just lost a lot of discipline there. And people gave a lot of credit for work not done. And crypto would be the just ultimate manifestation of this. Somebody writes a white paper, they raised $100 million on tokens. There's no valuation. They still own 100% of the company. And right. there's $100 million in some Panamanian yeah. foundation. And nobody knows who the board members are. This was the ultimate, uh, you know, 
uh, leap of faith or just recklessness, however you want to look at it. And so now we're probably a little too pessimistic. People want to see a little too much uh, or, you know, there's a company with a half million dollars in revenue, but they ran their valuation up to 50 million and now they can't justify the 50 million. And people say, well, it's worth 20 times what revenue you're making. So it's a $10 million company again. And now you have, you know, this giant, um, you know, um, valley between, you know, and this giant river that has to be crossed between what the actual value of the company is and what it was previously right. valued at. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say the poor founder, but you get these founders who VCs are sort of putting stars in their eyes. No, no, no. The valuation should be much higher. You know, you have to spend like crazy to keep up and keep your first mover advantage and everything else. And then all of a sudden reality comes crashing and, and turns out everything is bullshit or, or at least wildly exaggerated. Yeah. And, you know, and for me, I'm looking at it saying um, I basically just started J trading, doing my own version of day trading. Uh, people call me J Cal. Yeah. So um, I am literally I put a couple million dollars into a little um, side fund of my own, all my capital. And I'm starting to day trade and I've bought like seven stocks so far and I'm doing it on this week and start my podcast so I can learn in public how public market companies are valued and the psychology of it and the volatility of it, all that stuff. And I'm doing this specifically because I would like to become world-class at public so I can relate that same amount of discipline to private because 95% of your returns as a private market investor are going to come from companies going public. The other 5% or 10% might come yeah. from secondary shares or from acquisitions. But that's where the bulk of the money is made. So I really want to understand that. And then the number one thing I've been doing with my investment team, you know, we've got 20 people at launch. We do 70 meetings a week. We make two investments per week, you know, about 100 a year. That includes follow-on investments and new. So we're very active. Yeah. We are you know, in the top five most active angel investors. You know, If you took out Techstars and Y Combinator as accelerators, yeah. we'd be in the top three probably. You know, We're really active. And we will have this conversation sometimes with founders like, okay, we're, or we're increasingly having this conversation. What's the public market comp? Okay, you're doing, you know, real estate. You're WeWork. Here's WeWork's valuations. And you know, the problem that occurred, I think, historically, was nobody took WeWork and looked at Embassy Suites and said, "Here's what Embassy Suites is worth. Why should WeWork be worth 40 billion when Embassy Suites is trading at these multiples?" That doesn't mean you can't give them credit for other innovations, but or a higher growth rate. But you do have to have some grounding and. People are now looking at what are SaaS companies trade for on average, yeah. you know, based upon their growth rate. What is their growth rate? Is it 20%, 30%? Okay, in the private markets, you might see 100%, or you might see people tripling revenue. But you're tripling revenue on, you know, 250, 250K going to 750 or 750 going to, you know, whatever, two and a half million. Uh, you're not tripling, uh, you know, 50 million worth of SaaS revenue, right? That doesn't happen in the public markets, generally right. speaking. Uh, so anyway, it's a long way of, uh, 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 a long way of saying I've really am thinking about public markets and how they essentially, um, price these things and what the private markets are doing. And it's, it has been a very big gap, but we will close that gap and, and they'll get in sync, uh, over time. And it's just going to be a lot of medicine. It's a lot of pain. You know, if you go to that party and you stay out till 6 a.m. Yeah, and you've been partaking, <laughs> you know, it might be a rough Sunday. And, you know, Monday might not be easier. You know, might not be too easy. So there's a lot of right. people who had a lot of beverages who are now having to, 
you know, take a lot of aspirin. And luckily, I've always been pretty disciplined, and it's not affecting me as much yeah. as other places. You're, yeah, you don't need that B12 uh, IV thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so fast, let's just stipulate that you become a really good public investor, which is probably a reasonable assumption. Um, and then, you know, the, the times of irrational exuberance return in the venture world. So it's three years from now, and you have a much better understanding of how to value a public company and kind of how a earlier stage startup might ultimately be valued. Um, but now all of your competitors are putting in checks that are too big again because they're right back in the cycle and they're encouraging companies to spend like crazy because all they want to see is growth. Um, so what happens? Do you, having learned all of this, then take a step back or do you just have no choice but to jump back into the the chaos or how do you see it? I, I try to stay disciplined. Um, you know, if I have to pay a slightly higher amount, I will. If not, I'll wait. And so I'll say this to, you know, founders, listen, I've been doing this for a while. I'm a founder myself. If you can get 25 million, I literally had this discussion, you know, somebody was going for 15 to 25 million. The product's not even out yet, but it's, you know, it's a good team and it's a great idea. And the mock-ups, the MVP looks good. Uh, but they're, you know, they're not even in market yet. I said, listen, I, I would, if you were coming to me and you were anyone else and I didn't know you, I would invest at like 10 million. That would be kind of my upper bound for this investment. I know you're going for 15 to 25. Um, why don't you finish your product We'll put in 500K for 5%, finish your product with our money, and then go see if you can raise 15 to 25. But I think you're going to really waste a lot of time trying to get a $25 million valuation in this market. Um, and let's just get, we'll help you get to the next couple of milestones. And then you can see what the market bears. And uh, you don't have to accept like a tier three or four investor, because a lot of times the, the top investors have some discipline. And if you want to get one of those valuations, you got to go with a first-time fund or you know a really green manager. You don't know what they're going to be like on your board, et cetera. So I'll just have that candid discussion with people. I'm not trying to grind people down on valuation. I'm realistic about it. If it's a competitive space, you know, we'll be competitive. But I, I have been, you know, uh, counseling my own founders to be realistic and to set themselves up for success. Um, and we can always invest earlier and we're a brand in, onto ourselves. So if we go earlier, these kind of overpricing, overheated dynamics don't exist. And a lot of times I have to tell you, uh, I will be looking at a startup, I'll be talking to my team I'm like, okay, they're gonna raise a million and a half. They're gonna deploy this. They, they say themselves, they're gonna deploy this, you know, million and a half in but uh, you know 12 months this is 12 months of runway for them it's about 150 a month or something so why don't we wait because if they launch in order to support let's put the valuation at 20 million in order to support this 20 million dollar valuation they're going to need to have a million dollars in revenue yeah if they get what's the chances they're going to have a million dollars in revenue it's pretty close to zero because they're going to have just finished their product so why don't we just wait um, and then it's up to us to just stay in contact with them and use the product and then follow them up. So I've created a very good uh, CRM system internally mm -hmm. and we will in a database. And if we think something's really promising, we have on our um, schedule people specifically designed to go look at that startup every month and report back to the investment team. So if I say, hey, monitor this situation. I, I don't know if I understand this valuation for this new company, the SaaS company we love. I want you to go every quarter 
look at their number of employees on LinkedIn, go look at their Twitter. Are they still updating their social media? Are they updating their blog? What's the change log for their software on their you know, app updates? So I'm really trying to be sophisticated um, and thoughtful about it, even if we can't get their own valuation. And then we'll go to them and say, how, how's it going? Can we get jump on a quick Zoom for 15 minutes and get an update on the business? People want to get on a phone call with us. Yeah. You know, they want to get on a phone call with me or my team. And that solves our problem. But if you're a lazy VC and you don't do that level of work, like I'm really doing a lot of work, like 70 meetings a week's a lot. <laughs> and then we have two two-hour meetings every week with our investment teams, four hours a week, 10% of our time talking about potential investments. Like most people do a Monday meeting. We do two, a Tuesday and a Thursday meeting. And you know, it's two hours long. I may, I may make it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, actually. And because you guys are doing sort of two deals a week, are you generally reaching the conclusion in those meetings of what you're going to do on, the, on, a, on a, any given company? Yeah, that's where we come to those conclusions. So then it gives us the ability to say to a founder, I'm going to bring this to the Tuesday or Thursday meeting. And then we have a calendar. Hey, how many slots can we recently get through? Okay, so you know, we met with the founder for the second time on Friday. We don't have room in the Tuesday meeting. We'll try to get to a Tuesday, but more likely Thursday. So tell them they'll have their answer Thursday night. And we try to be really good about getting back to founders in time. I've really thought about like when I failed as an angel. And it's typically because I can't keep up with my inbound. I can't get back to people. I can't give them a no. I feel bad about giving a no, you know, those kind of things. And, you know, it's it's not easy to give no's to 99 out of 100 people. Yeah. But luckily I've got a team. I've, I've made a system out of it. I have very good... Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time crafting the language and we say not yet, most often. That's a good we answer. say no yeah. if it's like medical devices or no if it's a company in Japan because we don't speak Japanese and we don't have boots on the ground there. But a lot of times we'll say to a SaaS company, not yet, um, but we'd love to catch up on this date. Can we put something on the calendar? So those are some of my little secrets I'll share with your audience. And how far do you go with that? So like, for example, you know, like every VC, you and I get tons and tons of inbound you know, the best are from founders that we already know introducing someone or something like that. You know, sometimes it's someone who connects you, but then sometimes it's just almost spam. Do you say not yet to everyone, including a spam email where they went to 500 VCs on the same thing? Or is there well, a you know, level? It's a great question. My God, you, you really have the best questions. Nobody asked me this like level of intricacy. So what's really important is um, based on this, uh, we created founder.university and it's a 12 week program. So we'll say to somebody, Hey, we're not ready to invest in you from our fund or syndicate you to the syndicate.com largest angel syndicate in the world. We've done 265 yeah. deals now. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. Um, and we'll say, listen, we're not ready to do that yet. You'd need to hit these notes. If you'd like, you can come to founder university, uh, which is free if you complete all 12 weeks, uh, or, uh, you can, and we'll get to know you and we can see your progress every week and you work with our team, or you can come to the Launch Accelerator, that's $100,000 for 7, 6%, 7%, I think yep. 6%. Um, and you could do that if you want, and we spend 16 weeks with you. You know, So we, we direct them to those kind of opportunities. And this Founder University thing, I'm on my third cohort, was really like a breakout for me, because I had so many people coming to me, you know, you're saying spam, it could be delusional, it could be mentally ill, it yep. could be completely naive, and what I found is, you know, delusional, completely naive people change the world. And so I'm like, okay, this person's delusional. Yeah. Uh, this is completely naive. Let's put them into this 12 week course. And what we do is we say it's $700 to come to Founder University. If you make all 12 weeks, we just charge you back the 700. 
94, 96% completion rate for the first two classes. Wow. And, and how so, many of those have you then invested in? The last class, I think I invested in 10 of them wow. out of 200, so 5%. Um, and we did a micro investment. So most of these, Bradley, were not even incorporated yet. So I said, listen, I'll be your friends and family. Because a lot of them are people who don't have rich friends and family. I say, I'll be your friends and family. We'll put in 25K for 2.5%. million valuation. We watched you build a no-code product you know, in Bubble or Notion or Coda or Zapier. We watched you delight five customers. We'll give you 25K for 2.5%. Get incorporated, you know, have a little money to pay your server bill, and then go try to get into an accelerator. It's kind of like the money to give you enough runway to get into an accelerator. How much uh, of that do you feel like is the math really makes sense and you'll have real returns as a result? And how much of it is, hey, I'm in this ecosystem, I'm a pretty prominent voice in this ecosystem, and there are things we have to do to keep it going, even if there's not like a government with collective action. So I'm just going to do some of these things. No, no, no. It's completely capitalistic. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I, we, we've, we had a couple of companies from our accelerator and from our events become unicorns. And so when we saw that happen, we realized, you know, if I were to do, if you get 2.5%, let's say you got diluted all the way to it's a unicorn status, right? Yeah. And you wind up with just 1% of a unicorn. It's $10 million, correct? Um, $25,000 means 40 per million. It means I can do 400 of these investments and break even. Now, this seems crazy, right? Like my math seems insane, but I'm a gambler. And yeah. so that's what I do is I try to handicap the stuff as best I can. And I'm not some math whiz from MIT counting cards. I'm just a pure gambler. And I just think to myself, you know what? We had the company Grin.co go through our accelerator. It became worth a billion dollars, our 6% you know, ownership in that gets diluted 50% along the way. It's 3%. It's worth 30 million. 30 million is 300 companies going through our accelerator, right? Yeah. So you start to do this math. It becomes quite uh, addicting uh, if you can scale it. Scaling venture is very hard. Masayoshi-san just tried to. Uh, Techstars and Y Combinator have. Uh, and I'm doing that as well. And it, it's hard to do, but you just have to be disciplined. You have to take a decade-long approach to it. And I, I take a decade-long approach to founder university. And I do think we'll invest in 30 companies a year and we'll have 300 of those investments, 400 of those investments in 10 years. And, and one of them will hit critical mass. More importantly, we will have a relationship with them when they go to an accelerator, maybe they choose ours, or they raise a seed round or you know, they raise a series A. So that's my hope is that option, right? So yeah, it's not just about the, the two optionality is, is the real value there. That's the, that's really the key. Same thing with our accelerator. You put 100K in, we're on the cap table. Yep. We're in touch with the company. They're raising again. We get we get a, a, a leg up on the competition to lead that next round. Yeah, and that makes total sense. So some early stage investors would say in private, at least to me, I imagine to you as well, like, look, it, it is... As long as a third of our companies end up with some sort of liquidity event, like you said, 90% of that is an IPO, nothing else really matters because, yeah, it'll probably be, you know, it'll probably lose a lot of value in the public markets before our lockup expires. But if we invested at the seed or the A, we were in so early that we make a lot of money no matter what. So this whole kind of overvaluation trend really works well for us. Um, it, it, is that a legitimate way to look at all of this, or do you feel like, um, that's ultimately just sort of a very lazy way to invest. No, I mean, it, it is a strategy. And I think it was so easy for so long that everybody went to late stage at the same time. And now late stage, 
founders are so clever, right? They self-select for cleverness and leadership and gamesmanship. They're like, oh, I'm doing a late stage round. Great. Send me your best deal. I'm having an auction. Then they take those five top term sheets and they say, great, um, here's the high bid. Does anybody want to beat it? And then three of them beat it. And they say, okay, you know, now we're going to you know, grind you on terms. And so all that money becomes fungible. And you know, if you're going to pick Masa, Tiger, whoever, you're just going to pick it on who pays the highest price and has the least amount of rights. And so then it becomes like a sucker's game, you know, perhaps if the market gets too hot. So, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. I had an opportunity early on and somebody was like, listen, you're an idiot. You're working too hard. You're investing in too many companies. Come work with us. We're late stage. We want you to do one great deal a year. We want you to put 50 million into it. You do, you know, put 500 to million work over the next 10 years. Use your platform to just make one big investment and use your name to get in there. And then you could take the other, you know, nine months off a year, basically. What do you, that's why I was just wondering when you say that. What do those people do all day? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think um, not much, you know, uh, not much is the answer. I mean, you are evaluating deals. So maybe they evaluate two companies a week, 100 to find that one to put the 50 million into. But I, I don't like that moment in time. I like being early, you know, the, the yeah. Uber experience, the Thumbtack experience, the Calm experience, Density, all these great companies. I just loved being the first, second, third, fourth investor, getting to know the founder early. So, you know, once you've made your money, which I've done a couple of times, it's really about your own personal enjoyment. And yeah, I, I just get a real kick out of it. You know, being, you know, on the being on the board of a company like Density, which is a unicorn now, yeah. and I did the seed, and I know that I introduced them to the Series A, the Series B, and the Series C investor. All three of them friends of mine. Like, it's kind of a cool thing, you know. Yeah. When you're, cool. uh, and you know, people are joining the board, and it's like with, with Density, it was my friend Mark Suster, my friend Cyan Bannister. So Mark Suster from upfront, Cyan yeah. from yeah. founders, and then yeah. eventually Mamoon and the team over at Kleiner. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun, you know. It's like wow, you know, this is happening, and if. You know, when they go public, it'll be like, oh, yeah, I own 6% of this company. It went public. And I've been here with, you know, Andrew, the founder from the beginning, or, you know, Alex uh, and Michael with Calm from the beginning, you know, or Travis and the team with Uber from the beginning. It's kind of fun for me. Yeah. I mean, also, so just, I'm optimizing for fun. And you're building, right. I mean, you're out for fun, or you're maybe being a little modest, which is, I would say, like, if I had a job in finance where I just moved numbers from one column to another, which is what late stage, you know, growth investing feels to me like I'd be bored out of my mind. Right. But when it's like, okay, I'm going to try to, you know, create these companies that don't exist, create these technologies don't exist, disrupt these shitty incumbent industries that need to be disrupted. Like that feels meaningful. Right. And sometimes there's societal value. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes it works. Oftentimes it doesn't. But to me kind of collectively, it, it gives me what I need out of my work uh, from a personal standpoint. Um, would you say it's the same thing? And if so, for the people who are happy just doing one deal a year, what is that motivating thing for them that makes them feel happy about that? Yeah, you know, I, I meet a lot of people in venture and even startups and, you know, motivation is very different for different people. Uh, a lot of people came into the game uh, because they saw money here and, you know, they wanted to accumulate a big stack of money and they do, and, and sometimes it makes people really, really happy, and that's great. Uh, for other folks, you know, um, it's status, and they're playing, you know, like as Naval will talk about the status games, and you know, uh, they they want to, you know, have so many unicorns, or they want to be so successful, you know, uh, be on the board of a thing, and you know, get speaking gigs, and you know, whatever. And it's, I think it's also different at a different point in life. And so this is why I think there's a big discussion in the back channels about, you know, do you back 
young, naive, high energy founders who don't know any better and want to change the world? Or do you have the ones who've done three or four companies and they're not going to make stupid mistakes? Oh, but maybe they're a little more tired or maybe the money doesn't matter as much to them. Maybe they're doing this for a different type of status, a later life status. They want to do some good in the world. Um, and, and they want to do something that's, you know, environmental or social. And, and so uh, it's very f- interesting for me to watch. I was a psychology major and, you know, I like to think of myself as a little bit of a, a you know, a, a good, good judge of character. And I like to study individuals and it is just fascinating to me, the range of motivations people have and many different range types of motivation can make you succeed. You know, people are like, this person's too competitive. It's like, do you understand the power of competition? Like it, it might be immature. Certainly it is at times, but literally it's in our DNA. And if you watch the Michael Jordan, you know, last dance, or yeah. if you've watched any young entrepreneur who gets into, you know, a, a, a war with another startup, man, that competition can drive you for a decade or two to levels of success that people just are, in awe and or offended of yeah and but it's, it's, you watched it did you watch the the last dance i did you know you're, you're right i mean look what but it's a really good question right it was actually what i was about to ask you next anyway which is so is michael jordan incredible absolutely uh would you if you were doing a draft of the everyone ever played in the nba would you pick him first absolutely no doubt would you want to be michael jordan i'm not that's sure that's the key question yeah no. he seems pretty the answer Yeah, I mean, that is what everybody, unless he's putting us all on with his unhappiness and pettiness, which is a possibility. Like maybe he's so next level that he's actually not that petty. I was thinking this because I was like, could this person possibly be this petty after this much success, right? Can you imagine you are so good that just, you know, people have debates about you versus everybody and they all come to the same conclusion. Yeah, it's you. You're the guy. Um, that you release this right as LeBron is finishing up his career to kind of, you know, tweak him, which is what people said was the re- the timing of this, right? Mm-hmm. It's like to just cement it before, you know, LeBron gets a chance to say, I'm the GOAT. Um, and then just, you know, all the personal offense he takes during this thing. <laughs> and I just Man, like, I mean, you know? even, even making up slides that didn't exist, right? Just to motivate well, him. That's what competition is about. And I've been in that trap myself. And I said to myself, you know, this person offended me. I have to destroy them and I have to win and dominate them at all cost. And, I, you know, I did that in my 20s and 30s. Man, was it effective? You know, there were, when I did Silicon Alley Reporter, there was a newsletter at New York and then a print newsletter called Alley Cat. And yep. I had done my Silicon Eye Reporter once a month. And people were like, oh, you keep getting scooped because PR people would sell me on a story to be the cover story. You know, not that they could get on the cover, but, you know, they were like, hey, we'll give you this exclusive. Then the exclusive would suddenly break in the weekly at New York. And I was like, this is bullshit. I have to destroy them. So I came out with Silicon Alley Daily and I started reporting every day on Silicon Alley. So by the time the at New York Weekly came out and they were better journalists than me. But, you know, their newsletter just waned to nothing, you know, and they were two of them, much more talented journalists, with a lot more experienced, you know, 10 years older than me. And then this alley cat started doing events 
And I watched them. I was like, whoa. And somebody told me, yeah, they lose money on the newsletter. I don't know if that's true or not. Like the, they did like a 16 page newsletter type thing, like yeah. uh, release 1.0. But they said, oh, they're making like $50,000 every time they do an event. And I was like, okay, I will do my own events. And I just crushed them on events. <laughs> you know, the biggest parties, everything. I just felt I had to take those two people who put Silicon Alley in their name, you know, and we're covering the same thing. I had to just destroy both their brands. And so I just studied their brands. I found out from back channels how they were making money and said, how do I destroy them? Like literally that was my insane and brain where, where, in where are they today like still kind of like you know i think they're journalist professors um yeah. the journalism guys really great uh i forgot their names jason trevokas and then another guy they're really sweetheart kids you know yeah, like, they're not, they, they were, were like entrepreneurs. they were super nice like i, I look back at them like oh my god i, I must have been a terror <laughs> and then the the two women who are running alley cat who knows? Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what happened to them. Um, they're, they're, certainly, they're neither of them went on to do what I did in my career. Yeah. Um, not, not that I'm like still competitive in that way. I'm no, kind of, of like not. Um, to, and, and mean that sincerely, not. I feel like I'm playing with the house's money now. You know, like and yeah. I'm, now I'm just fucking with people, like to see if I can do crazy, ambitious things that yeah. entertain me. You know, like really, it's oh, it's my I, own personal entertainment yeah. that I do a lot of what I do. Yeah, I, I have to often stop myself from fucking with people because I realize the only reason I'm doing it is for my own amusement. Yeah. And like that's that's generally not sufficient. No, not good. But I do my own projects literally because I'm like, oh, this would be fun to do. Yeah. And if it works, it'd be hilarious. Yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to like defeat anybody now. Like I'm not going to defeat Y Combinator or Techstars or, you know, some other fund or angel list versus the syndicate. Like, I don't actually think that way anymore. Uh, I just think, well, what's the most fun I can have? What's the most fun I can have with my team, you know, experiences I can have in my yeah. life. And that really is, I think when you grow up poor or I grew up middle-class to poor and we were always under money pressure, once you get the money, then you're on the other side and you have to take a little bit of time to reflect and go like, okay, I have it. Okay. What fears have gone away? And then what things remain, right? And you do a little self-introspection. Like if I'm, yeah. what am I not happy about when I've got millions of dollars? Because I thought the millions of dollars would make me happy. And we right. all know <laughs> it doesn't. Like some of the most miserable people we know are the ones who have the most money in their bank accounts. And so, you know, that's, it's a really so interesting you personal say journey. Kind of intellectual engagement is what kind of drives you the most these days to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I, I get a real kick out of conceiving of new things and building them and then seeing, you know, if people enjoy them and what joy they get out of them, right? Uh, and uh, it's just fun. Every time I build something new, um, I get that little rush of like, ooh, product market fit. Let's see what happens. And so I've been building this business social network, which is kind of a combination of like the way Reddit does news, LinkedIn does profiles and Quora does questions mm -hmm. at inside.com. And I'm working with a whole team and we iterate and it's, you know, it's just coming out of like a little private beta right now. And I'm like, what if we had like one website that could solve all these problems in one place? Okay. Let me see if I can build it. And then I did the all in podcast and that's become like one of the top 30 podcasts in the world after I already had one of the, you know, so now I have two of the top seven tech podcasts in the world. And that was just like a fun thing I did with my friends. Then I did the all in summit that became people. Like, oh my God, this is the next 10. And I you know, kind of just did it in my spare time for fun. Um, and I got a couple of other projects I'm kind of working on to, to try new things. And I, I guess it's more tinkering and building brands. I love a good brand inside.com this week in startups, all in podcast, all in summit. I like conceiving of a brand, the syndicate.com. I'm going to do another reality TV show, hopefully. So I just, I'm putting the final notes on a contract uh, this week with a 
major reality TV companies. So um, it's kind yeah, of so, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I kind of have the same level of like just tons of different things that I do and they might they might span lots of different ideas. And a lot of it's just to see if, hey, can I make this thing work? Can I make that thing work? And then the question I always get, which I imagine you do too, is like, well, where do you find all the time of the day for it? And I just kind of do it and it works. And I, that's not a totally satisfying answer for anyone who asks me, you know, how you do all these different things. But is, is that how it is for you? Yeah, you know, a lot of people do ask me, like, how do you get all this stuff done? You seem very active. And it's, you know, if you look at this week in startups, a 10 person, nine person team, it'll be a 10 person team shortly. Yeah, we'll have four producers, five producers, three salespeople, and then me and Molly. Yeah, 10. Um, and so, you know, I get all the credit for it, but there's 10 of us, me plus nine. Uh, then you look at like the syndicate and my investments. There's 11 people on that team. So it's me plus 10. Uh, inside, there's 30 people working on that. So it's me plus 30. So you get a disproportionate as the creator amount of credit. And then people think you're like, you know, doing this all yourself. Like I'm editing the video for All In or, you know, like I have a producer who does a great job at that. Or I'm doing the show notes for This Week in Startups. Like I have a producer who does that as well. And so, yeah, it's... um it's kind of one of those things where well, you know, that, people right, and that's the thing people don't realize is no, you're not touching that much. Like you're touching lots of different types of things, but at a really high level, right? And so the vast majority of the work that happens for any of these things is not really you, right? You're making decisions, you're hiring people, you're coming up with big ideas, you're the public face of it, but you're not really the one doing the day to day. And so as a result, it, it's just much more feasible than I think people realize. Yeah, I mean, the ultimate example would be Elon. Like, you know, he's got incredible teams inside of Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink, boring company. Like, I'm friends with Elon, and I, I know a lot of the people who work with him. And, you know, you meet some of these people, and it's like, wow, the, the top five people at Tesla could be CEOs of five other publicly traded companies, you know, like, easily. Like, these are, like, very deep benches that get built up over decades. Um, and so, yeah. Okay, so last that, question. So we're yeah. we're twenty ish years removed from the last the first dot com crash. Um, yep. Obviously, you've learned a lot since then. For the twenty yeah. four year olds or whoever are, are listening to this right now who are experiencing their first crash, um, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Yeah, having a great cash cushion and then understanding the business you're in and being focused are really what's important. So let's start with cash. You should always have twelve to 24 months of cash available to you uh, in your bank account uh, at steady state burn. So if you got a 10 person team and you burn 75K a month and you're not making any revenue, you know, it would be behoove you to, you know, have whatever, a million dollars in the bank, $2 million in the bank. Um, And then in terms of focus, you know, you'll have people who are pursuing five different business models in the same startup and you, need to focus on only one thing when it's early in your career or only early in your startup's life. You you have a lot of people who, with this free funding environment and an up market, could pursue five startups inside of one, hit no critical mass in any of them, but have enough, you know, bells and whistles and confetti to convince investors to keep putting in money on increasing valuation. So they just learn this lesson that if I'm, you know, active, if I'm of action. If people see, you know, me doing a lot of things, well, they're going to give me money. And then now those same people are looked at as not like, oh, wow, this person's got unbridled energy. They're looked at as spastic and unfocused. 
And you really need that really deep focus on you know this one problem, this one set of customers, this one business model, this one revenue stream that you've figured out how to make it churn, right? You got to make that business model churn. You got to get product market fit. And so many people figured out product market fit between founders and investors, not between your product and your customers. Right. They literally identify, they inadvertently became good at selling to venture capitalists. And right. yeah. that has no value today. It's now the opposite. All the companies that figured out how to build a boring SaaS company that made 50K a month, that's all anybody wants to talk to today. And you got grand visions, like your, your big ideas are not gonna get you a $50 million valuation. You know, your $5 million in reoccurring revenue is going to get you a $100 million valuation. Those people are going to be overfunded. And the talkers and the theatrical people, you know, they're going to just be left aside. So keep, keep your head down and just get shit right, and it'll probably work out. If you, if you, you know, people ask me, like, what's the secret to investing? Team, product, customers. If you want to be a great angel investor, look at those three things. I know there's TAM, total addressable market. I know there's the culture. I know there's the competitive matrix, all this stuff. But if you see a team like the one Travis put together, yeah. and then you see their product, version one of Uber, and then you talk to a customer, holy shit, this is magic. Like That's all you needed to know. That's it. Now, did Bill Gurley make you know incredible you know uh, decisions based on the TAM and markets and networks and all the stuff he studied, of course. But even earlier, you know, you just, you're betting on a founder and their team, whether it's, you know, today in the news, new, you know, Adam Newman, who is really charismatic, who built a really good product that really delighted customers. I know it went off the rails, but to this day, if you said to anybody like, got a recommendation for uh, a place where I can set up a small office, they'd say, go to WeWork. Oh, it's awesome, yeah, go to WeWork. We, I've been there a hundred times, we WeWork. Like, they literally turned, just like Travis turned a cab ride into an Uber, Adam Newman turned you know, uh, an office suite into an, you know, a WeWork. And that's really what it's about. You have to make a product that delights customers. And if you do, you'll get money. And the money allows you to build a bigger and better team and invest more money in a team. It's that flywheel that drives all of this. So I feel like people have overthought it. You know, crypto is the perfect place to look for people overthinking it. Yeah. Oh my God, this protocol, and then this participant, this network effect, and then this defies this and that, rights and smart contracts, blockchain. It's like, who's the actual customer? And they're like, yeah, you know, the people with the tokens. I'm like, who are they? Describe them to me. Is it a stay-at-home parent? Is it a hedge fund manager? Is it a HR manager? Is it a salesperson? Who's the customer? Who's the goddamn customer? And did they take their credit card out and pay for this? And they're like, yeah, we don't know, but a bunch of people bought the token, so therefore there's customers. It's like, yeah, that's not product market fit, sorry. <laughs> okay, Jason Calcanis, thank you so much for joining us. Been probably one of the most interesting episodes we've had in a long while. Hope you come back soon. Thanks so much for having me, Bradley. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'd love to come on again uh, in a year or two.